0: From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life Myra Glass. And each week on our show, we choose a theme, invite writers and performers of all kinds to do stories on that theme. And usually, somewhere near the top of the show, I tell you what the theme is and give you a little roadmap of what's coming up in the hour. But I think that today, it's going to be more interesting if we just start right in on the first act and let things unfold for a while before I give it a name, before I tell you what the theme is. So... Our first story is by Dale Orlandersmith. It's originally from her Obie Award-winning show, Beauty's Daughters, and was recorded at a variety show here in Chicago called Millie's Orchid Show. Before we begin the story, two quick caveats. Number one, some of the language might not be suitable for younger listeners, though, as you'll hear, we've beeped out the nastiest words. And number two, and usually I would never point something like this out, you need to know that Dale is a woman, an African-American woman. And I point this out because if I didn't, you wouldn't be able to enjoy what the audience in the theater with her gets to enjoy, which is the pleasure of watching her complete transformation into this loudmouth white guy. So here's Daylor Andersmith.
1: Hey, ah! Jerry! How you doing, buddy? How you doing?
2: Lorraine.
1: You looking good, honey. You look at you, man. Lenny, how's it going? All right. Johnny Black, Nectar of the Gods. Oh, man. I tell you, Len, today was s***. Yeah, yeah, I know every day is but today was really s***. you know, so f***ing busy. See, everybody I know who works in the fish market, right, because my clothes are getting f***ing ruined here. Everybody I know who works in the fish market, their clothes are f***ed up. And I tell you what, I can't stand the thought of going home right now. I just can't. Teresa's getting fatter and fatter. ain't because she's pregnant because I don't touch this bitch. (laughs) What, 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 I'm cold for saying that? Why am I cold? Lenny, let me explain something. No, please, wait. Please, please, listen to me. Lenny, I'm 31 years old. I'm married 12 years. I got seven kids. I'm a young man. I'm f***ing trapped. And T.T.'s the laziest bitch in the world. No, no, hear me out. Hear me out. Here she is, 28 years old, looking 50. The problem is, the problem is, I married too quick. My cousin Jimmy says to me, she "says Anthony, don't get married so quick. You still young. Go out, get laid. Have a pizza. But of course, I don't listen. Right? I don't listen. So this is where I am today. Come here, I want to tell you something. Come here, I want to tell you something. Come here, mother. Fucker, don't with me. Come on, man. Come on. I met this chick at my friend Mano's wedding. Yeah, he's a black chick. Yeah, right. Anthony Mancuso, right? Same fucking guy from Red Hook, right? Same guy, right? He's been in here with me a few times, right? He lives on Thirty Sixth Avenue now, right? In Bensonhurst, right? Same. It's the same guy. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's the same fucking guy. Yeah, it's the same guy. <laughs> so anyway, you know, we're at the reception, right? And TT's talking, you know, to Mano's wife, Gail, with the rest of the Cousinettes, right? They're sitting there, they're talking. Nah, nah, nah. And Mano's wife, Gail, is no price either. Listen. <laughs> see. So anyway, right? This black chick, Diane, her name is, right? Sitting over to the side, right? So I look over at her, smile. She smiles back. Then I notice that she's big, not fat. Big, in proportion. The way TT used to be, right? So I go over to her. And I say, you know, I really think you're good looking. And they really need to get rid of words like nigger and guinea. You know what? Because I want to put my tongue in your mouth. She gets
3: mad. She
1: says, let me tell you something. The only reason why you came over here is because I'm the only black person at this wedding. Well, guess what? I don't have a problem with that. You do, so do yourself a favor. Get out of my face before I hurt you. <laughs> now, I'm standing there slammed, right? Say, say, listen. Listen, come here, listen. I don't care how big you are. Woman or not, you hit me, you're dead. Right? And she says, first of all... My being a woman is not the issue Because I'm more man than you'll ever be And more woman than you'll ever know Second of all Technically I know I can't whip you Because you're still a man But if you lay one finger on me I'll give you such a fight You wish to God you stayed home today In other words, my name is pain I will inflict Now do you really want to with me? So now, you know, right? Like, I'm quiet, right? <laughs> and like, I'm also scared out of my mind. Now, like, part of me wants to give a smack. And another part of me's in love, Lenny. She's so f***ing tough, right? So I say, hey, Rocky, hey, 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 Rocky. I'm sorry, baby, I apologize. Call me to the bar to get a drink, right? So we go to the bar, we go to the bar, right? So I say, Diane let me order you a rum and coke, because I know that Blacks and Recans like that, right? (laughs) She gets mad again, right? She says, order me stoly Rocks lime garnish and stop being an asshole. So, like, now I know I'm in love, right, right? So, we go to the bar, right, hanging out, we're talking, yada, 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 and the DJ starts playing. I give you one f***ing guess, man, one guess. There you go, baby, Sinatra, Jerry V. I I swear my mother, every Guinea wedding, Sinatra so Jerry Vail, right? So then since all of us in the 30s, the DJ started playing disco, because, you know, that's what we danced to when we were kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I asked Diane, would she like to dance? And she says, no, she hates disco, likes rock, old R&B, and jazz. So look at her. I said, well, you like jazz? So she said, yeah. Lenny, I swear my mother, For the next three hours, we're talking jazz. You see, I don't know whether you noticed, right? But like, I I was a major jazz fan, man. I used to play, I used to play horn. I was playing both sax and trumpet. And my record collection, man, I had Cannonball Adderley, I had Miles and Prez, you know? See, jazz at that time, man, was like so a part of me, you know? But, like, uh, I can't touch it anymore, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, Diane uh, is a poet, you know, and I never knew a poet before. And, you know, she was talking about maybe, you know, that I could pick up my horn again, and, you know, maybe she could write lyrics, and God, I swear to God, Lenny, this woman is so beautiful to me now, right? And I'm thinking, well, yeah, maybe, yeah, you know, I could pick up the horn again, and, you know... And she's just talking and talking, and I swear, you know, she's the most beautiful thing I ever seen, right? And, and she told me, she says, I'm going to sound fucking queer saying this to you, right? But she says, uh, Anthony, uh, when you talk about music, your face becomes beautiful. Yeah. She, she said that to me, Lenny. She also called me a pain in the ass. <laughs> but she said, when I talk music... I become beautiful. See, Lenny, all of a sudden, wait a minute, I I don't, wait, I don't want nobody to hear this, right? All of a sudden, Lenny's sitting there talking about all these people that I liked in jazz, you know. I felt like crying, because I'm not going to be able to touch it again. And nobody ever saw that in me before, you know, nobody. So anyway, uh, you know, we're talking, it's really hot, you know, and I'm like, wanted to get outside, you know, because I was dying to ask for a phone number, right? Seconds later, T.T. walks out with the kids. Anthony, me and the kids are ready to go home now. Now, Diane looks at me like I'm crazy, right? T.T.'s standing there looking like a... Well, what the f*** can they do? Bada bang, bada bang. Introduce them to each other. Diane says, please, to meet you, I'm out of here. I'm doing a slide. That night, I take T.T. home, right? And dig this, dig this. I go down my basement, right? And for like the first time in like five years, I pick up my sacks. And it feels so fing good to hold it, you know. Then I put it to my mouth. And with every note I can taste, feel Diane. See, she's all over this fing horn. Then I put the sex down, open my eyes, And it dawns on me, I ain't going nowhere. I ain't going nowhere. But I could always do another shot of Johnny Black, right, babe? Well, wow, don't worry about me. I won't get drunk. I can't. I got to go to work tomorrow. But, you know, this is my time now, right? Mm. Just just let me sit here for a few minutes, all right? I, I tell you what, my time. I'll go in a little while, go in a little while.
0: Ken Vandermark on the sax. The story was by Dale Orlander Smith. And this brings us to today's theme, which is people who come alive for music, people who live for music, even though for most of them, they'll never get very far with music. All our stories today in today's show are people about whom you could say,
1: When you talk about music, your face becomes beautiful.
0: That's right. In our program today, Act 2, we just heard Act 1, Act 2 will be a Brother, Struggles to be a Star. Act 3, Choosing Fandom. Act 4, A Life in Music Without Fame or Fortune. So we are now at Act 2. For those of you who are keeping careful, careful score, I know there's so many of you who are. Um, act 2 is a, a story about somebody who decided to follow his dream about being a musician. And, you know, usually when you hear stories about somebody chasing a dream like this, stories about rock stars or Olympic athletes, or writers, or painters, or basically anybody who had to get out there, you know, and follow that, follow that star, you know, follow that dream. We don't hear how crushingly hard it is for the overwhelming majority of them. And in the middle of the story, usually you don't wonder, is this worth it? Well, the story you're about to hear does not have that, that shortcoming. You, you definitely wonder. The story you're about to hear was produced by Jay Allison with Dan Gediman. Dan is the one who narrates the story.
4: not Tom Jones, it's my brother, Alex Jones. And that's not his real name. His real name is Mark Gediman. No,
5: my real last name is Gediman. G-E-D as in David, I-M-A-N. You know, I'm proud of the name, but as far as showbiz is concerned, it can't be spelt.
4: My brother's middle name is Alex. He bumped it up to the front.
5: I like Alex. Alex has worked. There are not too many Alexes uh, that are uh, big these days, so I'm sticking with that name. It's very um, catchy. Just people always remember Alex.
4: For a while, when he was in this rock band in the late 70s, he called himself Alex Space, but that's another story. For the past five years, it's been Jones, alex jones
5: i had a jones for singing i had an addiction
4: that's pretty much the truth my brother has had a jones for singing for just about as long as he's been alive all he ever wanted to do was make music to sing for people
5: the kiwanis group the knights of columbus the lions club the elks the sons of italy You name it, if there's one of those, I've been there. Uh, My
4: brother sang constantly in our house when we were growing up. He always wanted to be a rock star or the next great soul singer. Once he was out on his own, he sang everywhere he could, and he still does. Anywhere he can find an audience to appreciate him.
5: Jerry Lewis Telethon. I've done schools, I've done colleges, I've done arts exhibition and whatever they also have cows and things like that you know one of those basically anybody they'll have me
2: you know uh, um, yeah t- Tom gets around
4: my brother's been in countless rock blues and R&B bands over the years but these days he's mostly hired as a Tom Jones impersonator he does that by night though during the day he holds down a straight job
5: you know it's tough to tell people your co-workers I'm going to be Tom Jones uh, particularly when I've been trying for the last uh, few years to uh, develop an image of this, I, I've been working as a computer analyst and uh, developing this image as this kind of kind of conservative uh, nerd uh, type, and I've totally totally blown it.
2: Oh.
4: My brother performs with a review called the Hall of Fame Superstars. There's a Patsy Cline, an Elton John, Buddy Holly, Roy Orbison, and then my brother closes the show as Tom Jones.
5: Singing as Tom Jones is very similar to the way that I naturally sing. We have a lot in common. But I've gotten to the point where I'm I'm hitting notes and doing things that are beyond the scope of what, what he did.
4: My brother is nothing if not confident, at least on the surface. He thinks positive and has an uncanny, almost overconfidence. It's an amazing quality, really, even unsettling. My brother's 43, not married, doesn't have kids. He's had a lot of girlfriends, but he doesn't have a steady one now. These days, he's living at home with my parents in Massachusetts. Um, why don't we go into the music room All right, for you know, a little bit, get Sounds out of right. the way. And Growing up, we had a room in the house we called the music room. Now, it looks a whole lot different. That's where my brother now. and I talked the last time I, I was home there, visiting.
5: There was a Scott amplifier.
4: Right, right in the corner here.
5: Yeah, and in the corner here was a very speaker. large professional turntable, which had come right from a radio yeah. station. And I forget what the the brand of that one was. Reco cut. Reco cut. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it was a, you know, top of the line. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, this is a this was a great room. Mm. Great, uh, great atmosphere, and uh, it kind of uh, you walked in this room and there were little musical notes bouncing all around it, and uh, it was a place where you could just kind of go in and play around and, and make believe you're the star. Come
3: on, baby. Latin lu baloo. Loop. She's a hope. She's a baby. Nothing she can do. She's my little bello.
4: Loop. This is a tape of my brother, pretending to be a star. Recorded on my family's old Grundig tape recorder, back around 1966. My parents put a lot of insulation in the walls of the music room, so my brother could really scream.
5: The entertainers who really are memorable and who've, you know, stand the test of time, a great deal of them have tremendous screams. So I've always thought that screaming was was um, essential to someone who, uh, you know, not necessarily in the popular music idiom, but in the anything that, that had any kind of edge or soul to it. There's got to be a scream there somewhere, and, uh, and the whole reason is the same reason. It's an expression of the most inner primal uh, feelings.
4: This is the room where my brother began studying the great rhythm and blues singers, people like Al Green, Little Richard, Otis Redding, James Brown, and Tom Jones, who my brother thinks brings them all together.
5: Just at the beginning of What's New no Pussy Guy goes What's
4: Right.
5: See? Now that you're getting now right there with the what's you got James Brown,
4: wow, you know,
5: right. and then you got uh uh Wilson Pickett, and then you got uh Ray Charles, and then you got uh know, you know you're all like ah! and you and mm-hmm. 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 what's? See, it's all, that's, so that's there,
4: you know. <laughs> I remember the first time I ever saw my brother perform. My parents took me to see him at a high school variety show when I was still in elementary school.
5: Now, nobody knew that I could sing, but there was a song that I, uh, th- there was a band, the uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears, and the the, the the first version of them with Al Cooper, and uh, there was a song in there called I Love You More Than You'll Ever Know, which is a real bluesy ballad. And I used to sing that over and over and over again in in this music room, so I ended up singing it and it was a real uh it was my first real performance in uh, as me in front of a stage, you know kind of being the you know the performer like the elvis or something and I can remember having this uh Kind of silky shirt on, and I probably had my ID bracelet hanging, and opened up my collar a little, and uh, I, it, it was quite an experience, as I recall. And I, I think I did, did fairly well. But I, as usual, I still do. I, I really sold it out, you know. Really started screaming there at the end.
4: I remember by the end of the number. Your shirt was virtually half off or yeah. something. That was my recollection. <laughs> I was very impressed. I, I'm sure it was the first time I ever saw you perform. I don't but even the, remember that you
5: were there. Which oh, is, I was absolutely yeah. there.
4: Yeah? Yeah, absolutely there. And uh, I remember that very well. But I, And mostly, of course, I remember you. I have a vivid memory of being on the playground behind my elementary school, um, trying to explain to the other kids that the night before my brother was this you know, big star... And I imitated you, yeah, really? singing the same song, which of course I had heard endlessly with you yes. rehearsing it, and I still know the song. and I went out and bought the record, by the way, about five years ago, and I have it wow. and, I, and the only reason I know that album is because of, yeah, of you. Yeah. but I remember I was imitating you, complete with undoing my shirt. I felt like, um, I felt like a celebrity, even though the other kids didn't know it, because <laughs> like, you know, God, my brother, you know, he just did this thing. And yeah. So I was pretty, I was pretty impressed. If it's not clear by now, I idolized my brother. I used to sneak into his room when he wasn't home and look through his things, put on his clothes, smell his cologne. As a matter of fact, I still have a YMCA t-shirt that he used to wear when he was a counselor at Camp Beaver. It's full of holes, almost a rag, but I'd never let it go. And I've always followed his career in music, because I was sure, especially after high school, that he was going to make the big time. And he almost did. His close calls with fame were many.
5: They proceeded to tell us that they were going to put something like a half a million dollars behind the supergroup and we were going to be the next Beatles or Monkees. And I think at the time I was 21, I believe, and I'm just sitting there going, wow. I made the big time. And uh, he actually said to me, I think you're, you're the next Bruce Springsteen. He, at the time, was an a representative for Atlantic yeah, yeah. Records. Joining this band called Easy Action, uh, they said, listen, we want 50% of you. And I said, forget it. I started a band right after that called Alex Space in the Orbits. So we're going to br- you know take you to the top. Yeah. I've moved to another band now called Fly, And we had a band called Future City. that band was called uh, called Zippers, Polite, and the Ambassadors of Love.
2: Everybody's got to have some fun. Too much depression in everyone. Let's live tomorrow and forget about the sun tonight.
5: It came to the point where every record company thought that the other record company was gonna assign me, and in effect I was going to be the next big thing. I, I, there were there were articles written saying that I was gonna be the next kiss and this and that. And Warner Brothers, uh, they were going to have cartoons and even uh, we're, were talking about designing some sort of a video pinball game, real total marketing thing. And I was so excited. And we were a couple of weeks away from signing the contract and uh, when uh, the OPEC had an oil embargo 1979, the price of plastic went up 400 percent and that was the end of my uh, my shot right there just just, just vanished before my eyes. We ended up uh, getting them to sign us up for a booking contract. And the one night they came up to us, neither of these guys drank, they had ulcers, and they both walked around drinking a glass of milk. I remember one day they both walked up to, uh, to me with a glass of milk and they said, um, would you mind wearing an Elvis mask?
2: You and me. We could be to
5: make a long story short, this thing really kind of fell apart. At this point, I really get just totally discouraged with the whole scene. And, uh, in fact, I remember just feeling like that what I really had inside me wasn't coming out. I took this microphone, I still have it to this day, and I threw it up against the wall. I don't know, it was all smashed in. I just left and never went back. I left everything I had that was related to music in that room and just basically quit.
4: My brother left music completely for many years after this time, around 1984. For a while, he dabbled with a little home recording setup, trying to write some songs but his heart wasn't in it. He stopped going out to clubs, lost touch with most of his musician friends, didn't play, didn't perform, just left. Then, in 1991, seven years later, he discovered karaoke. I was
5: sitting having dinner, and um, I heard this music in the lounge, and this chorus of uh, women singing was beautiful. I said, I have to go in and hear this group. And I went in there, and there's no group. There's a guy, looks like he's sitting behind a keyboard, and he's got this big thing saying, You are the star, you know, sing the hits or something like that. And I'm looking up, and there's a video playing of, uh, like, kind of follow the bouncing ball. I didn't know anything about ca- uh, karaoke. And it just sounds fantastic. And I'm saying, geez, all these years, I've been sitting around, like, trying to, like, wait for this the drummer to show up or the, uh, you know, the bass player's having a nervous breakdown, and here, you know, uh, there's no band. You just, they have these laser discs, they play the music, and you just go up and sing. Not only that, you don't even have to remember the words, because they're showing you the words. They had a little monitor that f- faces up to you. I mean, this was a singer's delight. It was heaven.
4: After that, he was hooked.
5: At the height of my interest in karaoke, easily I was going out all seven nights.
4: People loved him. He'd steal the show knocking out the audience at bars all over the Boston area. And he began winning contests.
6: All right, we have our, uh, just take it, all right, just leave it right there. We have our five finalists standing over by the video monitor. And uh, Billy Costa, all four judges have assembled uh, and, and decided who the winner is going to be. Why don't you tell us who that is? Uh, wait a minute, oh, okay, I'll just do it through this. Um,
4: I think it was unanimous.
6: The guy was spectacular. Um,
4: Alex Jones. I think was some... Alex Jones! My brother had found his way back to music, but this time he was Tom Jones.
5: I feel authentic. I feel real. This is real.
3: So, what, uh...
4: Where are you at in your, uh, in your process here? Well,
2: I like to put the leather pants on because it uh, just feels good. But I forgot one thing. i got to put something in my pouch. The ladies love this. Roll it up so it's just about that thick. Right. And then you fold it over, okay?
4: Uh-huh.
2: And what you got there
4: is a real peach. So, now you're going to stuff this down the front of your leather pants. Absolutely. And this is, this is for the, um... Authenticity's sake.
2: Next thing I do is I put a couple of belts with lots of, lots of metal on them. Because, um, it, it, I just feel good. <laughs> it also keeps my pants up. <laughs> okay, now, I have to get the makeup on. Okay, can I follow you? Oh, absolutely. Okay.
6: Absolutely.
2: I don't have the ruffled shirts They're all at the cleaners And I don't have time to pick up another So That's the best I can do It's kind of got that look a bit See That's what I have under But over As I'll show you later I have a nice sequined tux That I put over all of this And I kind of take a couple things off I see Because I get real hot You know what I mean Okay Got to have rings and Bangles and bungles I got the big cross, because he always had the big cross. So... So, let's... now, uh, what I have to do first is, um, tie up my own hair. Oh, I forgot. I also got to put the uh, mascara on the chest here.
4: When he was done, my brother was transformed. Oh, should... Not exactly Tom Jones, but close enough and ready to go.
2: Five minutes late ain't no problem when Tom Jones is in the house.
4: My brother and I go to a gig outside Boston, where some company's holding its employee appreciation party.
2: Any pussycats out there? Do I hear any meows?
4: It's in a function room next to a hotel restaurant. Bumbershoots, or Rockinghams, or something like that.
2: Oh, yeah! Meow, yeah! Pussycat, pussycat! i got flowers, I got to spend with you. Soul,
4: the night before this, my brother told me he'd performed at a Chinese restaurant. And after his finale, the whole place all the guests and the waiters, even the stagehands they all stood up and gave him a standing ovation. He said it was like being in a movie. Hello. A few months after I interviewed him, my brother got laid off from his computer job. My parents told me they were pretty worried about him. Now he's playing the stock market, trying to parlay his retirement money into a nest egg that will carry him for a while until he makes it big with his Tom Jones act. While my brother performed, I circulated through the room talking to people. And hey, this
7: guy is just like him. He's very good. He's very good. He's pretty close? I thought he was very close. I, if I didn't meet him in the hallway and know otherwise, I would I would have questioned was this really the Tom Jones?
4: I didn't tell anyone that Alex Jones was my brother. I just asked them what they thought of him. He's
8: got a great voice, a really great voice. He does, he's good. So, how do you get him anyway? Uh, I can make sure that you get his, his car. Yeah, I would. I'd like to have his car.
4: I wanted to hear that he was making them happy. I wanted him to succeed. I wanted to help him get more work. I wanted to hear that they loved him.
0: Dan Gediman's story about his brother was produced by Jay Allison with consulting producer Christina Eggoff. It comes from Jay's series Life Stories, which was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. Dan and Jay are currently working on an upcoming series for NPR called This I Believe. Their website for that, thisibelieve.org. Alex Jones can be hired to work as Tom Jones at private parties and corporate events, but he's working on a CD of his own music, under the name Alex Space Jones. Coming up, other strategies to keep music in your life if traditional music careers don't fly, from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International, when our program continues. This American Life, Ira Glass, each week in our program we choose a theme, bring you a wide variety of stories, documentaries, radio monologues, reportage, found tapes and found documents, which is what I have right here in front of me, our theme today, stories about people who you could say this about.
1: When you talk about music, your face becomes beautiful.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And of course, not everybody agrees about this beauty. Some people do not find it touching or inspiring to see people who love music. In fact, there are people who believe that loving music is a crisis of global proportions. And uh, the document I hold in my hand is an advertisement, a call to arms really, from Motor Booty, a zine, pretty great zine, And it's an advertisement for the first annual conference on world band population, on on stopping the crisis of world band overpopulation specifically. Uh, Says this ad According to recent studies, by the year 2001, there will be more people in bands than the global economy can ever hope to support. The US Census Bureau puts the current number of audience members to band members at a ratio of two to one. But present trends threaten to reverse this relationship, disrupting the delicate balance between performers and normal people. Soon, not only will virtually everyone be in a band, but everyone in a band will be involved in several side projects, creating a glut of virtually indistinguishable groups of guitar-wielding miscreants who, when not performing their so-called music, will be endlessly talking about it to anyone unable to flee. And then the add, um explains what's going to happen at the conference. Uh, The seminar is dealing with the imminent dangers of band overpopulation, legal strategies for achieving zero-band population growth, private sector initiatives for ending band growth, strategies for ending multiple-band membership. Here are some of the things that that they suggest can be done to combat this global crisis. Let's see. uh, Three strikes and you're out rules creating stiff criminal penalties for artists who release more than three full-length albums per career, waiting periods for instrument purchasers to allow for mandatory background checks for prior infractions, and a cooling-off period to discourage thoughtless and impulsive band formation, stiff fines for bands that imitate other bands, civil infractions for air bands, and an all-out ban on cover bands. They also suggest, um, let's see... Boycotting labels that refuse to stop signing additional bands, as well as cracking down on pointless local indie labels, so-called indie labels. Finally, supporting random band testing by employers, especially in high-risk businesses like coffee shops, copy shops, cafes, bars, and record stores. Well, given the crisis of global banned population explosion, perhaps the only honorable course for all of us is to forget about performing and just put that energy into being members of the audience. And what we present next on our program as Act 3 is a case example of how to do exactly that.
3: And I
0: This is the Fastbacks, a pop-punk band from Seattle that's been around for years, actually. And the story you're about to hear is not about being in a semi-obscure but well-respected band. It's about being a fan of a semi-obscure but well-respected band. Sarah Val is a writer and a music columnist for the San Francisco Weekly, and she tells the story.
8: Sometimes, opening your mail can be a little like listening to the radio. You're not paying attention, just absent mindedly flipping through the letters and bills and then wham. Some little surprise comes out of nowhere and changes your day. I got this package. Inside was a letter thanking me for mentioning the fastbacks in a book review I had written. Not from one of the fastbacks themselves, mind you, just some guy in Chicago. His name was Scott Lee and he had enclosed this Xerox booklet about the band. Flipping through it, I stopped cold at something called the Fastbacks Drummers Pie Chart. Since they formed in 1979, the Fastbacks have gone through about a dozen drummers, and this pie chart identifies the drummers by name, listing the percentage of songs which each one has contributed to. But at the bottom of the page, small print warns, note. Rusty and Nate's shares may not be totally accurate. Their percentages may be approximately 0.68% off. And I don't think a decimal point had ever struck me as endearing before. The drastic exactitude of 0.68% sort of captured my heart. And I had to meet this person.
7: Basically, it has your standard discography, and and there's just like some facts here that I've dug out um, 139 total songs, 8 hours, 25 minutes, 43 seconds worth of songs. So he showed
8: me other stats like total recorded versions of songs, total number of seconds of songs, which is 30,343, in uh, case you were Uh wondering.
7: Shortest song, shortest instrumental song, shortest song with vocals the longest song and the longest song without a drum solo that's only because i was
8: stunned um, i mean i thought i liked the uh, band out of the Charms, and normally so that, as a music lover and, and as a woman i rail against the, of the of mostly Canada, male record collector but, um, geek habit of reducing and rock and roll to baseball signs. card collecting so the they flatten the out solo this solo complex thrilling thing down to manageable lists of names and titles and dates but Scott Lee's Fastbacks tribute has the devotional fervor of a medieval illuminated manuscript. The list of facts and figures is so relentless and exact and painstaking that it takes on this liturgical glow as if the Fastbacks were a religion and Scott Lee its prophet. Uh,
7: but some of the new additions to this, as I ramble here, uh, listed out the songs through A through Z and... Uh, did the percentages of songs starting with each letter, and the the letter that won was I. There were 19 fastback songs that started with I, representing about 14% of the songs. With every album, they seem to have a song that starts with in, like in America, in the summer, in the winter, in the observatory.
8: I soon found out that the band has befriended Scott Lee and that they've sort of informally appointed him their de facto archivist. Singer Kim Warnett corresponds with Scott via email, sometimes like four times a day. Guitarist and songwriter Kurt Block graciously calls him a good person to have on our team. Though when he first saw Scott Lee's packet, he had some understandable worries.
9: Um, I was like, "Boy, is this is the first thing? The first thing I, I, that would come to my mind is this: is this guy really scary? Um, is he the kind of person I would, um, you know, run away from if?" If he was ever in the same room? Is this the kind of person that I would uh stop answering my telephone if he called and and no it's not uh, not not to not to make you think that we we don't think Scott Lee is actually fairly crazy of a person um but he's not uh he's not the annoying kind of crazy person that uh that you read about and I, mean, I think he appreciates his own uh over the topness
8: If anything, the fastbacks are a little protective of Scott Lee. When I was talking to Kurt, I jokingly called Scott his stalker, but he set me straight. No,
9: he's not a stalker. He's a superfan.
8: Oh, superfan?
9: Yeah. Stalker, that would be, uh, that has uh, negative connotations. Yeah, that's something we don't need.
8: (laughs) Superfan
9: is fine.
8: Like the superfan, the members of the Fastbacks all have day jobs. So on any given day, it's possible that Scott is devoting more energy to being a fan than the Fastbacks devote to being in the band. When I interviewed Kim, the gaping differences between being a band member and being a superfan were never clearer. Okay, so um I have a pop quiz for you. Okay. Uh, how many total songs before before <laughs> the new album New Mansions and Sound have The Fastbacks recorded? What is it now? How many total songs have The Fastbacks well, you recorded? You know,
5: unfortunately, I don't have something in front of me that could answer that question.
8: Really? Okay. I have to say it is 127. And I was wondering also if you knew the median song length. The what? The well let's start with an easier one. What do you think is the average length of a fastback song? She doesn't know, but according to Scott, it's two minutes fifty-one seconds. When I visit Scott Lee's house on Chicago's north side, his roommate lets me in. Scott's playing his guitar along with the new Fastbacks album. His room is decorated with Fastbacks posters, and Scott himself wears a Fastbacks t-shirt. He shows me this incredibly complex chart he's working on, a sort of family tree to the Seattle music scene, a town by the way which he has only visited once. The producers of This American Life would like me to say here that when Scott talks about the fastbacks, he becomes beautiful, because that would go along with the first piece in the show today. But I would never say something so corny. think you kind of made the switch between just being a listener and being as kurt block called you today super fan
7: i think the transition really happened when i was in law school and uh i had made this tape of uh of my favorite fastback songs and i was i was walking across uh a very icy cold midway in buffalo and um Despite how cold it was, when I listened to this music, it really just pumped all this life into me it was It was really a life affirming experience, as corny as that might sound, but I don't know. I was just really happy at that point, and it was like it was just a light on me that shone, and I hadn't seen it before, and now everything seemed seemed
8: better I mean when you show this this info packet to people what what is usually their reaction?
7: They wonder, uh, I think the first question I always hear is
8: Do you have a lot of spare time? In fact, Scott's spare time is limited He holds down a full-time job at a Chicago advertising agency And he writes his own songs And truthfully, he flirts with the idea of not staying a fan He's moving to Seattle, partly to be closer to the Fastbacks He's actually in their circle of friends now and he's tried a couple of times to start his own band. Once, he was invited on stage with Kurt to play along with the song. It was exciting, but he's left-handed, and they didn't have a left-handed guitar for him, so it was sort of a disaster, not the moment a super fan dreams of. So on this show, what happens is someone tells their little story and um then then we play a song so you get to pick which fastback song gets to play at the end of your story
7: at the end of my story (laughs) i'd probably say save room for me then because um i've definitely saved room for the fastbacks so save room for me
0: our contributing editor and the voice of teenage superhero Violet Parr in Pixar's new movie The Incredibles. Act 4, A Life in Music. San Franco is 72 and has spent his life playing and teaching the accordion. And the thing to know about him is, he hates accordion music. Most of it, anyway.
6: The sound of the accordion that we don't associate our, with ourselves with too much is the uh, like this. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm, I haven't done that for years. Uh that is hard for me to even play uh, regular style with yeah, the, see why you like it the other way. Well, the other <laughs> way it swings. <laughs> the other it swings with the uh, with the one finger and I get a jazz sound like this. Watch. Uh
0: Sam Franco hates that accordion umpa beat. He doesn't like the normal Lawrence Welk chord progressions. In his music, he changes them into jazz chord progressions. And where normal accordion players use lots of chords all over the place, he prefers to play single notes. In his head when he plays, Sam hears Coleman Hawkins and other jazz greats. He invented this style. And if you check the Chicago Yellow Pages for jazz accordion, Sam is the only listing.
3: <laughs> ¶¶ All this
0: hour we've heard from people who want to make their living full time from their music who dream and strive for that. Sam's done it all his life playing gigs, working, never getting famous though.
6: you know what it saved me that I had the knack for teaching. You understand that was my ace in the hole would be the, the teaching part if i didn't have that, I would be I would be out of the music business completely.
0: He's watched players who weren't any better than him get a lot of attention, get notoriety, get more gigs. And in the end, he decided he doesn't care. That life doesn't suit him.
6: You couldn't couldn't, uh, pay mortgages, and buy a house on plane, because uh, you played one. You played one night. That's it. How would you like to go look for a job every week? And that's what it amounted to. I never did have that kind of energy. ¶¶
0: Most of the people who Sam started playing with back when he was a kid did not stay with music. Back when Sam began, accordion was huge, huge. Every band in Chicago had an accordionist doing their keyboards. Because pianos in those days were so impractical. You know, can't carry them around. The one that you find at the hall is always out of tune. But that era did not last. When Elvis hit in the late 50s and rock and roll followed, accordion business died. Nobody hired him. Nobody wanted to take lessons. And lots of guys who Sam played and taught with quit the music business. Sam had always played guitar, too. And he was actually one of the few people in his crowd who made the jump from the swing era to the rock era. These days he jokes that every brick of his house was paid for by rock and roll. A big poster of electric guitarist Randy Rhodes is the biggest thing in his music room. He taught lessons for years on the guitar. But Sam still views the guitar as, um... An inferior instrument. He can lecture you for a long time on how it's not in the symphony orchestra. Basically, in his view, America's 40-year love affair with the guitar is a concerted effort to slap
6: back at the accordion. Because, you know, everybody's mother and father played the accordion. And they said, we're not going to play it. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to play something different. And there it was. Just came out as a... A rebel cause, I think. Yeah. It only has uh, you know, five notes. Two are the, it says six strings. Two are the same, <laughs> so it brings it down to five notes. You know, you have to hit it with a pick, You you got to use two hands to make one note. Does that make sense? Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to use two hands to make one note?
0: I met Sam through one of his students, Catherine Boyd, who totally adores Sam. has known him for years. and says that whatever goes on in Sam's life, he's always happy when he's talking about music. And the most surprising thing Sam told me when we talked was that it took him a long time before he was completely at peace with the way he plays. He started playing accordion when he was 10. He's 72 now. He played accordions back in the old neighborhood on Taylor Street as a kid. Found his way to the jazz sound that he loves by high school. Played in USO shows during World War II. Taught and gigged for the next half century. But he says he never felt good about his playing until he was in his 50s. Up until that point, the sound that he heard in his head wasn't what was coming out of the instrument. In his fifties, he said he just stopped worrying about what people would say about his playing. He just played.
6: The only thing I can, say, I'd like to say this is that uh, I never enjoyed playing as much as I do today. All my in all my days, I never enjoyed playing as much as I did now. Now, so why is that? Yeah, ask me why.
0: Why
6: is that? Yeah, why is that? Because today, I know what I can do. I know my limitations, and I know my abilities. Like, if I can't do it, I say, who cares? You know, I can do something else. But when I was younger, uh, I knew my limitations. Of course, we all (laughs) know our limitations. And that bothers you. But today, it doesn't bother me.
0: Today in his music room, surrounded by his instruments, with one of his favorite students, Catherine, egging him on during our interview. Sam couldn't seem happier, really. The program was produced today by Nancy Updike and myself with Peter Connie and Elise Spiegel. Special thanks today to KALW in San Francisco, to John Connors for Musical Advice, to Bo O'Reilly, to Bridget Murphy and Millie's Orchid Show, to Catherine Boyd and the folks at Experimental Sound Studios who made the pretty recordings of Sam Franco. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to our programs for absolutely free or buy CDs of them. Or well, you know you can download audio of our program at audible.com slash Life, where they have public radio programs, best-selling books, even the New York Times, all at audible.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by Volkswagen, who believes it's important to push the limits, question tightly held assumptions, and see what's really possible. And so they offer the Phaeton a luxury car from Volkswagen. More information at vw.com. And support comes from a Disney presentation of a Pixar film, The Incredibles, including the voice of our own contributing editor, Sarah Val, as Violet, the creators of Finding Nemo show you a side of superheroes you've never seen before, The Incredibles in theaters, November 5th, WBEZ Management Oversight by Mr. Tori Malatia, who is staring in your eyes right this second when he says, When you talk about music, your face becomes beautiful. Yes, it does. And we'll be back in your face next week with more stories of this American life.
3: PRI Public Radio International